hospitalization, man, I'm, I'm really getting old. I, I am getting old because the other day, not too long ago, I was trying to study my Bible and I, I couldn't focus on the print. The text of the Bible was just too small. So I went to Lifeway over in Reynoldsburg, you know where that bookstore is over there? And I went up to the, the girl at the counter. I said, I need a Bible with larger print because I'm having a hard time studying. I said, you have something in large print. Lisa, stop laughing, please. Your day's coming, okay? Oh, yeah, we have some large print Bibles over here. So she showed me a few of the Bibles, and I'm looking at them. I said, I'm sorry, I need something in a little bit larger print. She said, well, we do have extra large print. So I said, okay, show me those. So I'm looking at those Bibles, and, and it's still kind of like I still couldn't really, it wasn't in my comfort zone. I said, do you have anything bigger? And she says, yes, we have giant print so I am proud to say that today I am the proud owner of a Christian Standard Bible in super giant print. And you could probably read the text from the back pew. Can you read it from back there? Can you read it? Okay, so that's how my eyes are going. So I don't know about yours, but that's where I am in the world these days. Let me tell you a little story about myself. 20 years ago, I came to the end of my wandering you know what I mean by that? I was as prodigal as prodigal could be. Now, sure, I was raised in a Christian home, and sure, I was raised going to church every Sunday for 15 years. We didn't miss a Sunday. But in my teenage years, I started to wander, and I started pursuing the things of the world and not the things of the Lord. Maybe a few of you can relate to that in your own personal journey. And I was working in Nationwide Insurance where I worked for nearly 30 years, and a, a friend of mine came up to me, and I knew him to be a Christian. And he comes up to me, and he starts asking some questions about where I might attend church. And he said, David, are you a, a regular church attender? I think he was trying to get me to go to his church. And I said, well, and I start going into the kind of the pre-rehearsed kind of, well, I was baptized when I was 10, and well... And really, I kind of identified as a cultural Christian. Do you understand the difference? I wasn't really a Christian who was active in the faith at all, but yet if somebody were to still ask me, I would identify as Christian. And yes, I would go to church at Christmas time and, and Easter and for the high holidays and for weddings and things of that sort, but I wasn't really living the Christian life. So my friend starts asking some honest questions of me about my faith, and he invited me to his church, and I agreed, and I went to go to his church, and it was at that time that I kind of met the Lord again, and I rededicated my life to the Lord, and that was about 20 years ago, and, and in very fast order, very short order, I realized that I was probably going to have a life that was involved in ministry of some sort, although I didn't know what that looked like, and so I go to my friend and I said, you know, I, I think I really need to consider finding a long-term church home. What do you recommend? What kind of church should I go to? You know what his answer was? It surprised me. He said, a healthy one. I thought he was going to say something like, well, I'll go to a Baptist church. I know just the one in Groveport or Lithopolis, or wherever, right? No, go to a Presbyterian, or make sure you go to a non-denomination, or make sure it's a church that teaches us. He didn't say that. He said, make sure it's a healthy one. And I really didn't understand what he meant by that, because if you go to any pastor in any church of any denomination and ask them if their church is healthy, what would they say? They're going to say yes. 
They're probably not going to answer honestly and say, well, at least a third of the people here are saved. Right? What is a healthy church? What are the signs of a healthy church? We're not left in the dark about this. Paul, in his letter to the Thessalonians, gives us a clear response and a clear answer as to what a healthy church looks like. So if you were somebody in your wandering at one time in your life that was looking for a healthy church, or if you're ever wondering if your own church is healthy, then maybe we can look at the points that Paul was giving to the Thessalonians and see if we follow suit in that ideal of a healthy church. But he also told me something else. Excuse me. He said, David, he said, yes, search for a healthy church, but make sure that first you are healthy. Amen? Make sure you are spiritually healthy. And what does that mean to be spiritually healthy? We could talk about that ad nauseum for months and months. But today what we're going to focus on is what are the three signs of a healthy church as Paul was alliterating to the church at Thessalonica, easier said than said, apparently. So our focus verse of today, yes, we're going to read all 10 verses of the first chapter because that occupies the entire chapter, but this is our focus verse of the day. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3, where Paul tells them, we recall in the presence of our God and Father your work of faith, labor of love, and endurance of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Well, Heavenly Father, we do indeed thank you for uh, the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that we can come into your house of worship this morning and lift you up and you alone. We pray, Lord, that we decrease so that you may increase. It's in the precious name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Interestingly, uh, at the same time I was asking my friend what kind of church I should be looking for, uh, the pastor of his church at the time, Gary DeLashmet, who I openly admit I am borrowing heavily from for this message today, and this was about 20 years ago, he actually gave this sermon on three signs of a healthy church, and I've borrowed some points from, from his message because it really still to this day resonates with me. Because the, the Bible does tell us, obviously, what does a healthy church look like? But what do people actually look for when they're looking for a church? You might be surprised, or you might say, well, yeah, these kinds of things make sense. And there was some Pew research that was done a few years ago, and they went to a number of people who identified sort of like I did, kind of culturally Christian but not really attending regularly anywhere, and said, what do people look for in a church? And they came away with seven answers. And the first answer that they came up with was quality of sermons. So when people are looking for a church, they're looking for a pastor who can deliver a quality sermon. You know what? I have to admit, I still listen to Greg's sermons from 10 years ago. I have a bunch of cassette tapes at my house. Sorry, Lisa, I haven't returned those to you yet. But I still have a bunch of cassette tapes because if you don't know this, your your pastor is an excellent pastor. When it comes to preparing a quality sermon, the man knows the stuff. He's led by the Lord. Amen? And so I hope you never take that for granted because Greg is one of the most powerful preachers that I've ever seen and and one of the most well-studied and well-versed in God's Word. So there is a quality to his sermon, but what the poll didn't ask is what do you consider to be quality? Because what you might consider to be quality and what Phil might be able to discover as quality and what I consider to be quality might be different things. 
here just a few days ago, a friend of mine on Facebook posted two pictures. And one picture was of a church, uh, not even a church, an arena packed to the gills. And the other one was kind of an older church with the kind of the marble columns that was empty. And the question below was, one of these churches teaches the truth and the other one doesn't. Which one do you think is which? And sadly, people are flocking to churches nowadays that rather than teach them the truth, tickles their ears, as Paul said to Timothy. Because we live in an age now where people are putting aside sound doctrines and instead are surrounding themselves with teachers who are just telling them what their itching ears want to hear. There are so many churches that are teaching lies and half-truths and kind of wrapping it up and packaging it as, as truth, but it's not really truth at all. It's leading more people astray and away from Jesus than toward the cross, amen? So we need to be a church that is focused on truth, so the quality of the sermons has to be based on truth. The second thing people said they were looking for was they want to feel welcomed. You know, you walk through the door here at First Baptist and you got a greeter and you got somebody shaking your hand or hugging you and, and praying for you or talk, asking about your family. You know, it's important to feel welcomed. But I've been to churches and I've seen people not be welcomed. Maybe people of different races or ethnicities are sometimes looked down upon and say, what, are, what, are, what is that person doing here? They're not like us. And they kind of get pushed away, which is a travesty, because what does the Bible say about heaven and all sorts of people in heaven of all tribes and nations and tongues and ethnicities, and, and we're just a small part of that. People like to feel welcomed. People like a certain style to the services. You know, maybe they like having a band on the stage. Others don't. Maybe they like traditional. Maybe they like contemporary or a mix, or you have to baptize a certain way you got to dunk them three times instead of once, or you got to say it this way. So sometimes people like a certain denominational flair, maybe based on tradition that they've had in their lives. Location is important to people when they're looking for a church. They want to have a church that's sort of close to home, right? But although I have known people to travel 100 miles one way to attend church services because they believe that that church they were attending was the healthiest church they could attend, Classes for kids is very important, right? My boys were saved in this church through the faithful VBS ministry of the DeBoard family and others, and they were baptized right here about eight years ago, right? And they're still going strong in the faith. They're, they're actually excellent prayer warriors. I believe that's a gift God has given them. But they learned that through the faithful ministry here. People like that in a church. Another important thing is having family in your church, you know, Lisa's sitting with her parents, Don and Betty, and other people are sitting with their family and friends. Doesn't that feel great to go to a church and actually worship with your family and friends? Of course it does, right? But if you're just going to church just to see your family and friends, and you're not bringing to church a heart of worship, well, you can just see your family and friends at the next family reunion, right? You don't necessarily need to do that at church. Church is for worship. And we need to have the priority there, although it's great that we can do it with our family and friends. Amen? The seventh answer that was given was volunteering opportunities. People like to get plugged into a church. 
So I don't know, some faces I don't recognize. You might be new to the faith. You might be new to the church. You might have joined here after our family transferred down to Bloom Baptist and Lithopolis, but you might have got plugged in and you might be volunteers in the church now. And remember that first day you came through here and you're like, man, I really want to lead something. I want to start a kid's program. I want to do something and volunteer for the church. People seek that. They want to get plugged in. Now, all of these are well and good in and of themselves, but one thing is glaringly obvious. It's missing. What about the spiritual health of a church? Aren't people looking for a church that is spiritually healthy, right? I would think that that would be the first thing that they would say, right? Why do you come to First Baptist Church of Groveport? I would hope the answer out of your mouth is because it is biblically sound and spiritually healthy, amen? Biblically sound, spiritually healthy, not just because, oh, I love First Baptist because I have friends there. Well, that's great, but do you lead with that? What if you were to invite somebody to church and they were to say, okay, why should I go to your church? You're inviting me to your church, but why should I go there? Which reason would you give them from that list of seven? Or would you say, we are a biblically sound and spiritually healthy church? okay, I'll give your church a shot. But too many times people say, we have a praise and worship band. We've got about 2,000 people that pack our halls. We've got all of this stuff. We've got this and this and this. Yes, but is the Lord in your midst? Is the Lord there with you? Is there a spirit of worship? But what does a spiritually healthy church look like? What was Paul trying to convey in 1 Thessalonians as to the true nature of a spiritually healthy church? And before I really dive deep and answer that question, I'm going to show you a map here that's going to highlight Paul's second missionary journey. Paul was on his second missionary journey, which took him through Turkey, which is kind of on the far right, also called Anatolia at the time. And he was sort of in an area that was just to the right of where that inn is for north, right? He was in a town called Derby, D-E-R-B-E. And it was Paul's idea that he would go north and east into Asia. He really wanted to preach to Asia. But as we learn in Acts chapter 16 and 17, God had other plans, God wanted him to go elsewhere. He wanted him to go to the north and the west where he ended up in Troas. And at the time, he was with Timothy and he was with Silas, also known as Silvanus, and also possibly Luke was with them as they were on this missionary journey. But every time he tried to go to Asia, the Holy Spirit thwarted the, his effort and instead pushed him in another direction. God had other plans for him. And the Bible says in Acts chapter 16, during the night, a vision appeared to Paul. A Macedonian man was standing and pleading with him, cross over to Macedonia and help us. And after he had seen the vision, we immediately made efforts to set out for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to evangelize them. Now, Caleb, go back to that map. He's in central Turkey. He wants to kind of go off the map, but instead God pushes him to Troas. And it's there that in the night, he wasn't sleeping, he wasn't dreaming, God gave him a vision. A vision is different than a dream. A vision is when God sort of gets his mind aligned with your mind and gives you a plan. It's not necessarily a dream. 
It doesn't say he was asleep. He received a vision and of a Macedonian man. That entire region up in Thessaloniki is considered Macedon in, in the ancient days. And you can even see modern-day Macedonia to the north and west of that. Come over and help us. What did the Macedonian man need help with? What do you think? This is open participation now. What do you think the Macedonian man needed help with? They needed the Lord. They needed the gospel. They didn't have the gospel. Yes, they didn't have it in Asia either, but God had plans for him first to go to the region of Macedonia. And I kind of envision that, that next slide where we have the, the vision that we can kind of look at. Boom, that's kind of Paul. He's up in the middle of the night. He's probably praying. He's probably doing some studying. He's reflecting, and all of a sudden, boom, this appears to him. Come over and help us. Cross over. Cross over what? Cross over the Aegean Sea. Get on a boat. Cross over and help us. Back to the map now, Caleb. I promise this is the last time. A lot of water to travel between Troas to get up to Thessaloniki, okay? Let me tell you about the culture at the time of Thessaloniki before we actually get into the passages and start reading. Thessaloniki was established in the year 315 BC by King Cassander of Macedon. Ironically, King Cassander of Macedon was married to a woman named Thessaloniki. So he named a new city after her. Thessaloniki also happened to be the half-sister of Alexander the Great. King Cassander had just recently killed Alexander the Great's son, Alexander IV, but yet was married to the aunt of Alexander IV. So there's a lot of family shenanigans going on there and a lot of struggle for power. After Alexander the Great died, there was a legend that quickly developed in the area, especially among sailors. The legend was that when Thessaloniki heard of her brother's death, she was so distraught, she threw herself into the Aegean Sea hoping to drown. But as legend goes, not Bible, but as legend goes, she didn't drown. She turned into a mermaid. So every time a ship would go by with sailors on it, she would break to the surface and she would ask them a question. And the question was, does Alexander live? Now, there was only one correct answer. And the correct answer was, he lives, he reigns, and he conquers the world. And if you answered that way, as legend goes, your ship was guaranteed smooth sailing through the Aegean. But if you answered wrong, she would transform herself into this monstrous creature and totally wreck your ship and create waves and storms and all that. So imagine you are Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke, and you're getting on a boat at Troas, and you're going to sail over to Thessaloniki, and there's a lot of water in between. And you hear all of these sailors on board. Every time they saw a dolphin pop up or a wave, they all of a sudden ran to the side of the boat and start screaming at the top of their lungs, he lives, he reigns, and he conquers the world. And at first, Paul must be thinking, what are they talking about? But then Paul was like, you know what? They're right. He does live. He does reign. And his love does conquer the world. Only I'm talking about Jesus Christ. Amen? And that was the message that Paul was going to be taking into Thessaloniki. Thessaloniki was a city of about 
200,000 people at the time. It was kind of on the edge between Europe and Asia. It was a major trading port. There was a lot of citizenry there. There, were, there was a lot of traffic going through there. But there was also a lot of myths and legends, the ancient Greek gods, so to speak. And that's what Paul would be dealing with. Come over and help us. Help us with what? Help us with the gospel. Let's read the entire passage of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. There's 10 verses here. We have to read the entire thing for context. And I'm going to take this from the Christian Standard Bible because that's my super giant print, so forgive me for that. It might be a little different in your translation. Paul, Silvanus, who Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We always thank God for all of you, remembering you constantly in our prayers. We recall in the presence of our God and Father your work of faith, labor of love, and endurance of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, knowing your election, brothers, loved by God. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power in the Holy Spirit and with much assurance. You know what kind of men we were among you for your benefit. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord when, in spite of severe persecution, you welcomed the message with joy from the Holy Spirit. As a result, you became an example. You might want to circle that. It might say model or example in your, in your Bible. You became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia, which is in southern Greece. For the Lord's message rang out from you not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but in every place that your faith in God has gone out. Therefore, we don't need to say anything, for they themselves report what kind of reception we had from you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he rescued from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. So those are the entire 10 verses of chapter 1, but we're going to focus our message today on the third verse, we recall in the presence of our God and Father, your work of faith. Something I didn't tell you earlier was that many scholars believe that 1 Thessalonians was the very first epistle that Paul ever wrote. It's not very theologically deep. In other words, he's writing to them to commend them for their work in the Lord. And he's commending them for their faith. And he's commending them and recognizing them as being a spiritually healthy church. It's not like the letters that he wrote to the Galatians. It's not like the letters he wrote to the Corinthians. This was a very cheerful letter telling them, boy, doing great, love what you're doing. And it's summarized in verse 3. And the first point that I want to look at is your work of faith. Now, what is a work of faith? Now, if we were to transfer it, uh, translate it literally from the Greek, it would be ergutes pisteos, and that literally means work of faith. So if you happen to have a Bible that uh, translates that passage more word for word, then your translation might say work of faith. If you have a Bible that translate, translates it more thought for thought, then it might say something like, your work produced by your faith. Who has a Bible that says, your work produced by your faith? Several of you do, okay? So which one is it? Is it work of faith, or is it your work produced by your faith? Guess what? It's both, because they mean the same thing. 
Although sometimes people might look at your work produced by your faith and think that what Paul's trying to say is, because you're a believer, you work. Because you have so much joy in your heart, you can't help but to perform works for the Lord. Not because you're trying to earn anything from him, but because you're so happy because of the grace he has bestowed upon you. So works are okay. Works are great. We're expected as believers to work. But you cannot work your way to salvation. Amen? And you cannot work your way out of it. Some people think that God will pull back his salvation from us if we don't work. And that's just heresy, right? But how can we know for sure that what Paul is talking about here is a work of faith? And I believe what he was referring to was Jesus' own words in John chapter 6 at the feeding of the 5,000. So we have some red-letter theology going on here. Jesus says to the people that were gathered there, Don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that lasts for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal of approval upon him. So then the people ask, and I always sort of chuckle when I come across this passage right here, because this passage right here defines and describes perfectly the human condition. And here it is. What can we do to work the works of God? Do you see, do you see what I'm saying there? What can we do to work the works of God? Let me spend a second on this passage because it's so very important. You see, Christianity is unique among all of the world religions, if you haven't figured that out yet. All of the other religions say that you have to work to gain favor from God. If you're Jewish, well, we have 612 Jewish laws and, and other rabbinical teachings, and you have to follow this stuff to the T, and then when you die, maybe, just maybe, God will show favor to you and allow you into his presence in heaven. Or if you're a Muslim, well, there's the five pillars of the faith, and if you're not abiding by the five pillars of the faith, well, then Allah might not look favorably upon you. And if you're of an Eastern religion, Hinduism or Buddhism, well, there's an eightfold path of enlightenment. And if you follow that eightfold path of enlightenment, you might reach nirvana. But if you don't, probably won't. You got to get reincarnated and you got to do all that all over again. You might come back as a dog or a cockroach or something like that. You have to come back again and do it all over again. We as humans are not good at receiving gifts, are we? Can you remember the last time somebody gave you a gift and it wasn't Christmas and it wasn't your birthday? Somebody gave you a gift and you're like, you're so taken back by it. You're like, you're reaching for something. You're reaching for your wallet or your purse. And you're like, oh, let me give you a little something for that. Because we're not good at receiving something for free. But God's gift of grace is free, Amen. And we accept it freely. We don't work for it. We can't earn it. You cannot perform enough good deeds to earn it or keep it. It is yours and yours forever. God will never revoke his calling of you. God's call is irrevocable. Amen? Jesus replied to them and he said, and this is where I think Paul got his idea of work of faith. He said, this is the work of God that you believe in the one he has sent. So if we are to work to get right with God, all that means is believing in the one God has sent. 
And this passage aligns with John 3, 16, doesn't it? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He sent him. And why did he send him? So that whoever believes shall never perish but have eternal life. That's exactly what verse 29 is saying. Believe in the one he has sent. That is your work of faith. So what I'm asking everyone in this room this morning is, have you performed, if you can call it performing, have you worked, if you can call it a work, have you performed a work of faith? Have you given your life to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Because it all starts there. It all starts with performing a work of faith. Work of faith can also be translated as act of belief. It's the same thing. Do you believe in the one God has sent as your Lord and Savior? Have you repented from your sins? Have you turned from the sinful ways and turned toward Christ? That's repentance. It's all in the turning. Many people believe they're Christians, but they've never repented of their sins. And you can't be a Christian unless you have repented of your sins because it all starts with turning from the old and facing the new. We're new creatures. We're new creations in Christ. Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 1, John 6, Ephesians chapter 2. We're all familiar with this verse. You are saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. You know what that means, so that no one can boast? People are walking around and saying, God's going to accept me because I'm a good man and I'm an outstanding pillar of my community and I've been married for 30 years to the same woman and raised my kids. And they just start spouting off their resume about all the things they've done. And they think that when they die and stand before God that they're going to boast and say, let me in because look at all the stuff I've done. And there are sadly many Christians people who identify as Christian, I should say, that live that kind of life. When my mother was on her deathbed, I whispered in her ear and I said, Mom, are you excited to see Jesus? Are you excited to get to heaven? And you know what her answer was to me? Well, I've never killed anyone. I was really taken back by that statement that my own mother would have this belief that, well, I'm a good person, and so I looked her dead in the eyes. I said, Mama, it doesn't matter what you do. It only matters what Christ did for us. Amen. What did Christ do for us? He gave it all. And he couldn't have given any more. And he did that for you and for you and you and everyone here and me. He did it for all of us. You are saved by God's grace through your faith. But you have to have faith this work of faith, this act of belief. So what is the first sign of a healthy church? You have your notes in your little handout there if you want to write this in. What is the first sign of a healthy church? One that is filled with truly converted believers. Have you ever been to a church where it's like you walk in, you're like, where are the believers? It just seems like there's, there's no spirit in this place. 
Several years ago, I was asked to participate in the start of a new church, and they asked me to kind of help them draft a, a mission statement and a statement of faith and all that. And there, there were many men and many women and some teenage kids or whatever. It took me a few weeks to figure out that half of them weren't even saved, but yet they wanted to start a new church. Now, how can you have spiritually, a spiritually healthy church when your people aren't even saved? When you have a church that is filled with truly converted, not just cultural Christians, not just Christians in name only, but truly converted believers, then you can have a healthy church. At least it's the start of one. Amen? But it starts with you. Have you given your life to the Lord? Do you count Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Have you recognized that you're a sinner and apart from Christ, you cannot save yourself? It's Jesus or it's nothing. It's heaven or it's damnation. Those are your two choices. And I hope you make the right one today because it has eternal consequences. You know, the, the good thing is that God is with you during the entire process of you coming to Jesus. God desires for you to come to Jesus so richly that he'll send people into your life. He'll bring truth into your life from all sorts of angles and destinations. And it's coming from all around you. And he will present you with truth and evidences for Jesus being who he is. And who he claims to be. The one statement that people make a lot in the church that irritates me to no ends is, well, you just got to have faith. And if you don't really understand it, don't worry about it. Just take a leap of faith. It's all about blind faith. Just jump in. I know you can't see it, but just jump in. And I say, no, that's unreasonable. God actually gives us evidence Jesus existed, by the way, and there is historical evidence to support that. Jesus was crucified, by the way, and there's historical evidence to support that. The tomb was empty, praise God, amen. And there is historical evidence to support that. And within a hundred years after the cross, there were a million believers in the land. A million. Something was going on that's never happened since. It was the dawn of the church. In Acts 17, we read about how Paul went to the synagogue when he first made it to Thessaloniki. He went to the synagogue there for three consecutive Sabbath days, and he reasoned with them from the scriptures. He just didn't give his opinion. He was meeting with a bunch of Jewish people in the synagogue in Thessaloniki, and he wanted them to know that Christ, the Messiah, he suffered, he died, he rose from the dead. I am proclaiming to you that Jesus is the Messiah. And what does the scripture tell us? That many were persuaded, some in this passage, but in other passages, many. They joined Paul and Silas. Not only did the Jews believe and convert or not even really a conversion because you can be a messianic Christian, by the way. You don't have to leave your Jewishness behind to become a Christian because Christianity is the fulfillment of Judaism. So they accepted Christ as their Messiah, as their Mashiach, as they would say. 
And even the Greeks, there were God-fearing Greeks that were there, and even they were impressed by Paul's rhetorical style, and even they believed the evidence that was presented to them and a great number of the leading women that were there as well. People were saved, and they were saved because Paul reasoned with them from the Scriptures. Have you ever had a, an opportunity to witness to somebody? It's all about reasoning with them from the truth. It's not about giving your opinion. It's not about what you think. It's about what God has said. It's about the truth in God's word. Amen? A church is a spiritually healthy church when it is filled with truly converted believers. But let's look at the next point in verse 3. And I'm going to skip over labor of love for now. I'm going to save that for last. There's a reason for that. And we're going to talk about endurance of hope. What does it mean to have or a steadfastness? Your Bible might say a steadfastness of hope. What does that mean? What does that look like? And I believe Paul defined that perfectly in his second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 4. He says, therefore, we do not give up, even though our outer person is being destroyed, your Bible might say crushed, our inner person is being renewed day by day. For our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. So we do not focus on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. If you didn't know this, get this point in your head, you're going to die someday. Sorry to be the bearer of bad news, but no one gets out of here alive, right? Unless your name is Jesus, no one gets out of here alive. Even Jesus died and, was, and rose again. You will suffer at some point in your life if you haven't already. You will get sick. You will be persecuted. Your faith will be shaken. You will at many times be depressed in your life. One day you will die. And I remind us of all this because even though we know these things are coming, do we stick to and hold fast to an endurance of hope? Now, what is hope biblically defined? It's not the same way we define it. Well, I hope it doesn't rain today. That's not the kind of hope we're talking about here. We're talking about the hope of the return of Jesus Christ. Amen? We're talking about the hope that one day Jesus returns and takes us off this planet and takes us to our eternal home. Amen? That's the hope that we're clinging to. And while we're living our lives, we hold fast. That's the steadfastness. We have an endurance that we're able to deal with everything in our lives because we know that this address is only a temporary one. Amen? This is not our home. We're just passing through. Many of you know of a family in our church, husband and wife, they have four children. Two are still with us and two are with the Lord. Here a few years ago, they were driving home to visit family. They were on 270 South. They were rear-ended by a semi-truck and their two oldest daughters died. Seven and nine years old. And you can imagine the shockwave that rang through our church as a result of that. 
And I'm not going to sit here and tell you that it's all cheery and happy and everybody's delighted and say, well, they're with Jesus now and and that we all have this cheery attitude. We know the promises of God. We know that they're in the comfort of the Lord. So the family turned it around and they took their despair and they took their anguish and they set up a memorial fund and they said, we're going to collect money every year for the sole purpose of sending children to Seneca Lake. And don't you know that over the last two summers, dozens of kids have come forward and given their life to Jesus Christ, all as a result of this horrible tragedy. Now, many times we might get stuck in the tragedy, and we might say, why God, oh, why God, oh, why? And we all do that, and that is an entirely natural human expression of our grief. But then later, maybe years later, we look back and we say, Wow, countless people have come to know the Lord as the result of the deaths of two precious babies. God works in eternity. We work in our own cocoon of time, and we don't understand the eternal big picture. And I'm not saying that the family is fully recovered. They'll never be. A big, huge part of their life is missing. But they know they have an eternal hope They have an eternal perspective, and they turned around their grief for an opportunity to win others to Christ. We will all experience persecution. We will all experience suffering. Don't you know your Christian brothers and sisters around the world are experiencing persecution like you never believe? That's the one thing that kind of gets me about American Christians. When we say we're being persecuted, we have really no idea. what it means to be persecuted. Well, my boss threatened to fire me if I, if I kept talking to my coworker about Christ or something like that. Yeah, okay, that's persecution, but if you're a Christian in China, if you're a Christian in Syria, where they love to just take the heads off of Christians for no reason whatsoever, are we really truly being persecuted here? And we need to keep that perspective, a global perspective, and be praying for our brothers and sisters around the world that don't live in such a free country as we do here in the United States. Amen? A church needs to have a head-above-water mentality. They fight because they know the eternal perspective, and they hold fast to that. There's a steadfastness of hope. Did you know that the worst that anyone could ever do to you is kill you? You might say, well, isn't that worse enough? Isn't that bad enough? But think about that from an eternal perspective. Did you know that the worst anyone can do to you is kill you? There was a missionary recently who went to this long lost island with this tribe of people who are very hostile to anyone that steps onto the island. And his goal was to share the gospel. And he barely set foot on the beach before he was killed for his faith. Did you know that the worst they could do to him was kill him? Because it's your soul that lives forever. Your body is just this temporary vehicle that transports your soul around. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, Do not fear those who kill the body but are not able to kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. So when we feel that we're being persecuted for our faith or our brothers and sisters around the world are being persecuted for their faith, they hold fast to this, to live as Christ, to die is gain in the words of Paul. 
Paul said, I would much rather be with Christ, but since I'm here, I get to preach the gospel. And when I die, I get to be with him. So to live, I get to live in Christ. But when I die, I have gain. I get to be with Christ. So the worst anyone can ever do to you is take your life. They can't touch your soul. Amen? They can't touch it. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing, not even the devil, can separate us from the love of God. So what is the second sign of a healthy church? It is a church that is filled with overcomers. You have all sorts of people who have faced persecution, who have faced real-life situations of loss and depression and anguish and all sorts of horrible things. We are basically wrecked human beings with our life experiences. But we are able to overcome because we keep our eyes focused. Our mind is set on things above and not on things below. Amen? One of the things that really irks me about false religion is there's a movement that exists out there that's called the prosperity gospel. Have you heard of that? Otherwise known as the wealth and health prosperity gospel. And many times people will be taught, well, if, if you are truly strong in your faith, truly strong, you'll never get sick and you should have money if you are truly a person of faith. So then they'll say, demonstrate your faith by sowing seeds to this church and give more money and more money and more money to demonstrate your faith in this church. And then you have a lot of people that start to get sick and people start pointing fingers and say, well, your faith must not be that strong. And what happens to those people? They get discouraged and they leave the church. So in those churches, there are no real overcomers present. And we're taught to overcome for the day of the Lord is near. Amen? We're taught to be overcomers, but yet so many other churches say, well, what's to overcome? If you have faith, your life should be perfect, and that's heresy. Back to verse 3. We recall in the presence of our God and Father, your work of faith, your labor of love. And I wanted to save this one for last to kind of keep with the theme of, and now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love, right? So that's why I wanted to save this for last, because Paul is always preaching about faith, hope, and love, faith, hope, and love. So I wanted to save love for last here. And this is where a church works in the joy of the Lord. We can go forward and we can look at verses 8 and 9. And it says, For the Lord's message rang out from you. Paul was commending the church at Thessalonica. The Lord's message is ringing out. Now, I live here in the village of Groveport, and there's a Methodist church that sits on the corner, and they have a bell tower. And every morning at 9.30, that bell starts to ring. And because it's elevated on a clear day, you can hear that bell from miles away. And what Paul is trying to, to use a metaphor here is your faith is a bell. Are you ringing your bell? Is it ringing out for where the world can see your testimony and hear your witness? Are you sharing your faith? Are you telling other people about Jesus? The church at Thessalonica was, in spite of severe persecution, by the way. Because did you know that after three Sabbath days, Paul was chased out of Thessalonica under penalty of death? And they chased him all the way down to Corinth, which is in the southern tip. Actually, I had to get on another boat and travel over to Corinth to escape the persecution. 
which is ironic because Paul himself, when he was Saul, he persecuted a great number of Christians himself. So I believe God allowed him to be persecuted so he can kind of get a sense of what he did in his past life and have a perspective of what he was doing in reaching those people. For the Lord's message rang out from you like church bells. Are you sharing your faith? Are you giving your testimony about how you have turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God? Did you know that before you came to Jesus, for the believers in the room today, before you became a follower of Jesus, you were a follower of idols. Did you know that? Well, sure, because you placed yourself before God, and you are an idol unto yourself. So you turn from those sinful things in your life that you were putting before the Lord, and instead you turned, you repented, and you turned toward him. So are you sharing your faith or are the bells of your testimony ringing out? Because that is the third sign of a healthy church. It is a church that is filled with evangelizers. So for a church to be spiritually healthy, people have to be truly converted and they have to be willing to overcome or at least have, have shown a, a tendency or a desire to overcome whatever comes their way. And then they have to be evangelizers. Jesus, before he ascended into heaven, after his death, burial, and resurrection, right before he ascended into heaven, he gave us the Great Commission. And the Great Commission reads, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, what's the word? Therefore, go. He says to go. And the Greek tense of that word is all the time go. As you are going, as you are living your life, go. And go and do what? Go and make disciples of all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father and Son and of the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And he leaves them with a promise. And that promise is, and surely I'll be with you always to the very end of the age. Churches are meant to be filled with evangelizers, people who are sharing their personal faith and their personal journey with the Lord. That, my friends, are the three signs of a spiritually healthy church. But don't you know what it all starts with? It all starts with you. A church cannot be healthy if its members are not. And if you do not know the Lord this morning... Today is your opportunity to make him your Lord and Savior. And I'm going to invite you here in a moment. We're going to, we're going to sing a hymn of invitation. I, I say a hymn because I'm old school. We still say hymns, right, in our language. But we're going to sing and make a joyful noise unto the Lord. And you might be something who, someone who was like me 20 years ago. You might consider yourself a Christian, but maybe only culturally so. And, and you're at a place in your life right now where you want to rededicate your life to the Lord. And you know, we have what's called these prayer benches up front. And you can come and kneel before the Lord and you can just lay it out at the foot of the cross and give God your heart and soul. And you might be somebody who has never accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And Paul says, please, he pleads, he says, make today the day of your salvation because we don't know what tomorrow brings. But my friends, we're going to offer an invitation for you to do just that. Join me in prayer to the Father now.